0: According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. We are in Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. Hebrews 11. We've been here for a few weeks now, two at least, looking at the Hall of Fame. You know, you can drive to Cooperstown, New York, and tour the Baseball Hall of Fame which is uh, something that must be done at least once in your lifetime. I, uh, I, I did. We were blessed to go there. And, uh, oh, My firstborn was not even two years old yet, I don't think. So it's been a while, and I had a chance to go up there. I need to go again because uh, Edgar Martinez has now been inducted, and that was uh, my mother and my father's lifelong dream, was to see Edgar Martinez inducted, and they didn't get to see it. They went to heaven before that happened, but anyway... Halls of Fame. There's also a Football Hall of Fame in Canton somewhere and a Basketball Hall of Fame somewhere, but baseball's where it really is anyway. So there's a Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Well, there's a Bible Hall of Fame and it's right here. It's Hebrews chapter 11. And the Old Testament saints that walked by faith, men of whom the world is not worthy is an expression that comes later in the chapter. But to kind of summarize what it is that they experienced, some horrible uh, martyrdom, some affliction. Uh, Isaiah was sawn in two, uh, for example, by tradition. That was Isaiah, that's referenced. He's not named, uh, but the uh, verse 37 talks about their hardships, uh, their mockings, scourgings, chains, imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated men of whom the world was not worthy. That's the expression. We talk about worthiness. Last hour, we're talking worthiness, walking in a manner worthy of our Savior. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. So uh, as we study, and because we want to walk worthy, we want to walk by faith, we are not of those who shrink back to the destruction of the soul. We are those who by faith inherit the promises, if we are those who walk by faith, we can expect the persecution. We can expect the difficulties. We can expect the hardships. And that goes with it. We don't uh, run with endurance the race until it gets uncomfortable. We run with en- endurance the race that's set before us. And the walk of faith will carry consequences, consequences, We'll prepare you for it now. We're not in those lower verses yet. We're still up very early. We're looking at verses 5 and 6 today. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Without faith it is impossible to please, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. A lot to uh, exegete out of those verses, let me tell you. So let's start with a word of prayer, uh, equipping ourselves spiritually to receive the word of truth, and then we can proceed with our study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning rejoicing that it is your faithfulness on display. We're rejoicing, Father, that when we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. We claim your faithfulness and we embrace it once again today as the study of your truth requires the faithfulness of your teaching ministry, the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit to take all things, even the deep things of God, and to reveal them to each one of us. We have living human spirits so we can receive spiritual truth. We also have the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, we are doubly without excuse. We humble ourselves before you so that with humility we can receive the word implanted. If there's anything that would hinder us from receiving it here today, clear it aside, Father. Clear aside the stones, the thorns. Give us good depth of soil on this day that we can receive that word implanted. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so last week we dealt with Abel in verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God. And we went through that whole story, the Cain and Abel story from Genesis chapter 4. We get to go past that today now to the Enoch story. And uh, we just, we're just getting a survey. The, the author of, of Hebrews is giving us an Old Testament walkthrough, an Old Testament survey whereby we can see faith in action and we could observe what faith accomplished in their life. And so today we look at by faith, Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up. He's in the seventh generation from Adam. We don't read that here, but we'll see that in Jude. By faith, Enoch was taken up. He was raptured. He was caught up so that he would not see death. The experience of departing earth without physical death is pretty unusual. Enoch's testimony led to his rapture. Enoch's testimony led to his rapture. Remember, we're talking about the testimonies that we have. The fact that the walk of faith testifies. It's martyreo bearing witness. And so God observes these witnesses. Fellow believers observe these witnesses. Angels observe these witnesses. And Enoch had a witness. Abel had a witness. Uh, There are some churches you might attend where the preacher will say, can I get a witness? And uh, that's not our style, but I understand where that methodology came from. And so this is a chapter, we call it the Hall of Fame. We could also call it the testimony of the witnesses. And that's what it's all about. Uh, The point in, uh, uh, in the previous slide, you might recall, was that Abel's testimony led to his martyrdom. And so as we contrast Abel from last week to Enoch this week, Abel's testimony led to his death, led to his martyrdom whereas um, Enoch's testimony led to his rapture. And those two pictures are significant. Noah's going to have a different testimony. Noah's testimony will lead to his preservation through the flood, all right? And all of these things become shadows, they become types, they become anticipations of things to be studied later. For example, the rapture of the church uh, would be one issue. You and I are faced with either death or rapture. Those are our two options for, for departing this place. The picture of enduring the judgment, that's not our picture. The days of Noah are in fact eschatological, but they're pointing forward to the tribulation whereby Israel will have to endure to the end so as to be saved. And that's a, that, that is a picture contained in Genesis. It's just not our picture for our application as we rightly divide the word of truth. But Enoch's testimony led to his rapture. Only two instances in the Old Testament whereby mortals uh, stepped out of physical life and stepped into eternal life without physically dying. Enoch was the first. He was a Gentile who did so. And Elijah is the second. He was a Jew who did so. So we have one Gentile and one Jew that experienced a rapture event. And uh, together they form the picture for the church. Because the church is neither Jew nor Gentile. The church is both Jew and Gentile in a sense. Whereby the body of Christ is raptured. And so it's very fitting that God would have one Gentile prototype and one Jew prototype in His uh you know rough draft uh not really but in his foreshadowing of the rapture event god doesn't need practice uh although he's very well practiced in uh, in all that he does so again looking here at the expressions as they're contained uh by faith enoch was taken up so that he would not see death he does not experience physical death and uh, and then he was not found so it's kind of neat the way this is expressed. He doesn't see death and nobody else on earth sees him, <laughs> right? They're looking around, where's Enoch? And he's, he, we can't find him. And uh, he's not found, he's not seen uh, because God took him up. And the testimony, the witness, he obtained the witness before he disappeared. When uh, Before the people couldn't see him anymore, what they could see was a believer that pleased God. And they saw a prophet. We learned in the book of Jude that Enoch was a prophet. Not mentioned in this verse and not mentioned in Genesis. But we do learn that Enoch was a prophet. He obtained a witness. All right. so Enoch's testimony led to his rapture. Uh, The full story for this can be found back in Genesis chapter 5. So hold your finger there or stick your church bulletin there. And uh, let's go back to Genesis chapter 5. And we'll get the, the whole story on this. Now the author of Hebrews can take it for granted that his audience knows all these stories. Uh, much of what he's already written carries the assumption that they are Levitical priests, that they have a thorough grounding in Old Testament theology, that they know the Old Testament very well. So he can mention sacrifices in passing and assume that his readers know exactly what he's talking about. He can mention... Uh, Abel in a verse or two and understand that his audience knows what he's referring to. He can mention Enoch and his audience will know what he's referring to, which is uh, interesting to me because Enoch is the object of much speculation and he always has been going back to the apocryphal era, going back to the intertestamental time of Jewish history uh, and even on into modern times. The character of Enoch is a fascinating thing whereby a lot of uh, cults, a lot of new age witchcraft, a lot of uh, there 's a lot of uh, Wicca movements that will name the name of Enoch in their writings, uh, Aleister Crowley and some of these other uh Mormonism uh, puts a huge emphasis on Enoch and on uh, Melchizedek for that matter uh, so uh' it 's remarkable that we 're looking this morning at a character that uh, just has a handful of verses in a chapter that people skip all right. Nobody reads Genesis 5 because it's begat, 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 and they get bored before they ever get to verse 18. And so people skip this episode. And then where else is Enoch mentioned in the Old Testament? Well, he's not. Uh, there's There's a passing reference to Enoch in, I mean, it's interesting that Hebrews includes him and that Jude includes him. The book of Jude, whoever reads Jude. All right. But Jude referenced Enoch. So, Now you're really paying attention to stuff. All right. So Genesis chapter 5, the book of the generations of Adam. And uh, you'll note, if you want to count these generations, um, Jude did, uh, in the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. But now when Adam procreates, notice what happens to this image. So in the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female. He blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. So we understand Adam and Eve, and without both, there's no procreation happening. Now, when Adam lived 130 years, he became a father of a son in his own likeness. Now, that's key because the image and likeness of God is now replicated, is now procreated through the generations. He created, uh, he procreated now a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. We, we read that last week when Cain murdered Abel, and then Seth was birth as a replacement. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were eight hundred years, and he had other sons and daughters, other sons and daughters. Right? Last week, you know, we discussed where did Cain get his wife? Where did Abel get his wife? Where did Seth get his wife? And just because they had sisters, there were women in the world at that time, and there it was. All right. And it was not considered incest when they're the only people in the world, okay? (laughs) Those incest laws didn't come about till 1400 BC in the Mosaic Covenant. Now, uh, so this is the pattern. And this is going to get repeated throughout the whole chapter. Uh, so-and-so lived X number of years, he had a son, he lived Y number of years after he had a son, and you add up the X and the Y, the total years of his life was Z. X plus Y equals Z. And that's the formula that you get in every single one of these these generations. And if you're reading the Hebrew manuscripts, you get one set of numbers. If you're reading the Greek Septuagint manuscripts, you're going to get a slightly different set of numbers. The numbers are larger in the Septuagint. And uh, there's other manuscript questions that we we work on. Numbers are problematic in uh, in Hebrew manuscripts. But let's get past that for this morning. All right. The um, all the days that Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years and he died. Okay, and that comes up again and again and again. Remember the uh, the wages of sin is death. Remember the consequences of eating the fruit. On the day you eat it, d- uh, you shall surely die. And so we're going to have death, 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 death for six generations until we get to Enoch. Enoch will not die. And there, that's a startling exception to the rule. And uh, the physical death that's mentioned here too, by the way, is separate from the spiritual death. When you study the theology of death, that it's on the day he ate of it, he died spiritually. It was not for 930 years later that that he died physically. So don't let anybody confuse you if they try to tell you that the wages of sin is physical death. It's not. The wages of sin is spiritual death. And that's what Adam and Eve became when their eyes were opened. They became spiritually dead on the day that they ate the fruit. Now Seth... Reading from Genesis 5 and verse 6. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. And so this should be very encouraging if you're a first time parent and you're 50 years old. The, uh, these guys were hundreds. Okay. <laughs> oh, I have fun sometimes. All right. <laughs> Seth lived 105 years and he became the father of Enosh. Different spelling from Enoch. Different spelling in the Hebrew. And it, I think most of the modern texts uh, have better spellings. I think the old King James messed up and used the, the common Enoch spelling. And that's unfortunate. I could be wrong on that. But then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. He died. Every one of these guys died. Die, 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 die. And so you look through the chapter and you figure out who, you know, who was the oldest before he became a dad and then who lived the longest after he was a dad and Methuselah gets the record for being 969 and the oldest man in the Bible. Nobody lives to be a, m- a millennium. That's, that's key, okay, by the way. I don't think anyone will live the entirety of the future millennium either. Any of the tribulational survivors, uh, they're not going to live the length of that thousand years. Anyway, um, also, you say, well, Adam kind of got cheated if he only lived to be 930. Yeah, but how old was he when, on the day he was created? Because he wasn't born. He didn't start at zero. I think he was an adult male son when he was created at, at the equivalent age of 100. I think he, if the youth dies at 100 in millennial conditions, then uh, I think uh, on the day Abraham was, uh, Adam was made, on the day Eve was made, I believe they were 100 years old, mature men and women. Anyway, as long as he was over 39, he was older than M- 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 uh, Methuselah. Trick question. All right. <laughs> I don't think he threw birthday parties either. Now, so Adam died, Seth died, Enosh died, Kenan died. Mahalal died. And, and as you work your way through here, also it's useful to chart um, the fact that many of these overlapped. Adam's still alive through how many, how many sons and grandsons, through how many generations, okay? Uh, I believe, depending on, again, Hebrew manuscripts, Greek manuscripts have different numbers. But in the Hebrew manuscripts, Noah is the first generation to not know Adam. Do you think that's an accident? That it's the days of Noah that become as wicked as they become when Adam's no longer around? All right. Now the details here with Enoch. So uh, Jared. Jared lived 162 years, became the father of Enoch. Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch and he had other sons and daughters. And Enoch may not have been his firstborn. It's just this is the age he was when this child was born. Because we know Seth wasn't Adam's firstborn. It's not always firstborn to firstborn to firstborn in this chain. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 65 years. Oh, started young. Got married young. They probably criticized him for getting married so young. And became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. Now notice something else that's different here. For six generations, we have they lived and had a son. They lived and then they died. They lived, they had a son, they lived and then they died. In this case, Enoch lived, but then Enoch walked with God. Not just that he lived. He walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not. For God took him, took him. And we have language here and similar to what we have with the taking and the rapture. We have a snatching, just like the rapture is a harpazo is a snatching. And we have here a testimony uh, that led to the rapture. Then you can read through the rest of this. Uh, Methuselah uh, begat Lamech, and Lamech begat uh, Noah. Lamech is interesting because he died so young too. Um, Lived uh, 182 years and uh, named his son Noah for a spiritual reason. He's prophesying here. We, We learned that probably all of these generations were prophets when it comes down to it. Um, but he called his, the name of his son Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. He utters a prophecy related to the naming of Noah. Then Lamech lived 595 years. How tragic. After he became the father of Noah and he had other sons and daughters. Well, see, if he, if he could have lived to be 900 and whatever anyway, the flood would have killed him. So dying young was actually a grace blessing. It was God's grace at work that he died as young as he died. And then Noah, 500 years before he became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, waiting rather late in life to start having his babies at the age of 500. So this is what we have. Now, is there more to be gleaned from this? Do you want to know more? Is, is the story just begging to be told? Well, what else happened there? That's probably why it led to such a rich uh, spectrum of intertestamental literature, not Bible, but apocryphal works, the book of Enoch. There's a one Enoch, there's a two Enoch, there's even other things that came later. Um, one Enoch, by the way, does not belong in the Old Testament. It's not even written in Hebrew and in uh, things. All right. It's Ethiopic. It's accepted by the Ethiopic church as canon, but not by any other Western church as belonging in the canon of Scripture. As far as the Bible is concerned, you've got to go all the way to almost the end, right before Revelation, you get to Jude. (laughs) And Jude will reference the prophecy of Enoch. So again, we're going to go past Hebrews now. On our way back to Hebrews, we're going to go past Hebrews and we're going to go to Jude. It's a single chapter book. Don't say Jude chapter 1 and verse 14. Just say Jude 14. Jude 14 and 15. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied. And in these verses actually uh, reference information that is contained in the Apocrypha, not contained in the Bible, not contained in the Old Testament, Uh, references made to the Apocrypha. But notice Jude is not saying, thus saith the Lord, or as it says in Scripture, Jude is not sanctioning one Enoch at all. But he is including information that's contained in a non-biblical book. And then the Holy Spirit, by putting it in, in the New Testament, sanctions this information as being true, as being uh, accurate from God's point of view. If you have any questions on that, we can handle Q and A time on Wednesday. Be happy to talk about that. But here's Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, and this is not a prophecy you're going to find in Genesis. But he prophesied, saying, "Behold, Yahweh, the Lord, came with many thousands of His holy ones, many thousands, myriads, even." to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. And it's a prophecy of judgment. And you'll note it comes two generations before the flood, and it's not even talking about the flood. It's talking about the second advent of Jesus Christ. It's talking about the great tribulation of Israel. One of the earliest prophecies in Scripture, and it's not recorded in Genesis, but it's one of the earliest prophecies of Scripture, and it points ahead to the Tribulation. It points ahead to the Second Advent. It points ahead to Armageddon. Ungodly. Ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. Remember, you can do the wrong thing for the wrong reason in the wrong way. That's what these guys are doing and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Global blasphemy against Messiah gets answered for on this event. So uh, this is a judgment. And Jude references this. This is Jude, the brother of our Savior, the brother of James, writing in the New Testament, possibly one of the earliest New Testament books. We don't really know the dating of Jude. Uh, we believe that James was fairly early, and yet I believe it's after Galatians. So we can place James maybe in the mid-50s in, uh, in writing the book of James, and likely Jude likewise in the mid-50s, uh, similar to uh, the dating for James. And, uh, and here we have reference to a pre-flood prophetic ministry by, by Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam. I love that phrase. The seventh generation from Adam. Have I told you my story on this? In the, uh, It's personal. It has nothing to do with Scripture. But 1754 is when Adam Bolander emigrated to, from uh, Germany to the United States. Adam Bolander and his, his wife emigrated. They landed in Philadelphia. They departed from uh, uh, Amsterdam. They actually got married on the Rhine River on their way to Amsterdam. And then boarded the ship. The ship was called the Good Intent. What a great name for a ship. And on the Good Intent, they crossed to Philadelphia. They landed in October of 1754. And Adam Bolander took the oath of allegiance um, to King George and the uh, British uh, colony of Pennsylvania. And so the first Bolanders arrived. And now, count the generations, guess what I am? Seventh generation from Adam. So, how cool is that? All right. Well, that's apocryphal, that's right. <laughs> and it's just as edifying as the apocrypha. But what's interesting, though, is that this would be given and not recorded in the Hebrew Scriptures I mean, it's really not necessary for the Hebrew scriptures to know what the divine revelation was like to the Gentiles and their stewardship. Any, uh, you know, or to the angels and their stewardship, to anything that preceded the call of of Abraham is not, doesn't really have bearing upon Abraham and and Isaac and Jacob, the calling forth of the, the nation of Israel. God did not give written scriptures to any Gentile people. He first started going in writing in the Hebrew language to the Hebrew people and giving the canon of Scripture to Israel. What advantage has the Jew? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God, that no Gentile nation was given canon like Hebrew. Uh, the Hebrew canon was given to the Jewish people. And so when we study Genesis and you have the seed of the woman revelation in Genesis 3.15, that's powerful. There's there's soteriology in that. There's messianic promises in the coming seed of the woman that uh, a savior is going to be sent who's going to crush the serpent's head. And it won't be without injury because the the Messiah himself will have his heel uh, bruised even as he bruises the serpent's head. And so there's conflict in the midst of salvation that's recorded in Genesis 3. Don't get me going, I can preach Genesis 3 all day. That's a a powerful message right there. The proto-evangelum the very first promise of a a gospel is right there in Genesis 3.15. So the seed of the woman revelation that's a fun one to preach (laughs) because we all know women don't have seed men have seed. You You can even understand virgin birth within the built in, baked into that language of seed of the woman promise as it's given. And then you have the Noahic covenant revelation. Uh, you can look at Genesis 9 and you can see uh, now three generations after uh, Enoch because you have Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. And Noah takes them through the flood and on the ark. And then after the flood, there's the promise to never flood the earth again, to never destroy humanity again. So uh, all of these chicken little skies falling, global warming panicky types, uh, they don't know what they're talking about because God will not destroy humanity. God will preserve humanity. And it's not going to be, uh, global warming is not a problem because there's going to be intergalactic universal consumption by fire when the heavens and earth are destroyed and the new heavens and new earth are created. But when you read Genesis 9 and after the flood, we have um, the covenant that's made with Noah. So God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him saying, now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. All of humanity at this point, post flood is a descendant of Noah. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by water of the flood, neither shall there be again a flood to destroy the earth. Because the second uh, destruction is by fire. It destroys the heavens and the earth, not just the earth. And so God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you. And it's not the uh, gay pride parade sign. It's the rainbow that celebrates the covenant he makes with Noahic humanity that after judgment comes grace. I will set my bow in the cloud, it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant. God's omniscient, He's not forgetful, but these are the occasions in which He chooses to bring His covenant to the forefront of His thinking. And he will look upon it. And this is uh, the blessing. This is the sign of the covenant which I've established between me. And it's a much easier sign than circumcision was given to, <laughs> to uh, Abraham. All right. So the rainbow was the sign for Noah's covenant. Circumcision was the sign for Abraham's covenant. And that's a different sermon altogether. Down to verses 25 through 27. And you'll note at uh, the end of this chapter... Noah has an episode here of drunkenness and a lot of debate about what uh, his son did to him in the tent there. Uh, but when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan. That's the son of Ham with a sin issue similar to Ham's sin issue. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He doesn't curse Ham because Ham's already blessed. You can't you can't curse whom God has blessed. But you can curse... Canaan here in this sense. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. See, not only are we learning about genealogies, we're also learning about the covenant promises and how it is that we're tracing through Seth to Noah, to Shem, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We're tracking that seed of the woman promise. The Genesis 3.15 uh, uh, breadcrumb trail is working its way through these generations and the God of Shem is significant. If humanity is broken down to Ham, Shem, and Japheth, we have humanity to the planet today. Our world population today is broken down into three broad divisions of Hemetic, Semitic, and Japhetic. To this very day, we have three broad divisions of humanity, 70 national divisions within those three. And it's the God of Shem, the God of Shem. This is where blessing will come. The Messiah will be birthed, not through the Hermetic line, not through the Japhetic line, but through Shem. So blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, Let him dwell in the tents of Shem. So there is temporal life blessing, secular blessings upon the Japhetic peoples, but the uh, spiritual blessing comes through Shem. If uh, Japheth is enlarged, it comes dwelling in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. So we have the revelation there. And it's curious. So you, you become a student of Genesis, and you've got Seed of the Woman prophecy, you've got Noah prophecy. And in between there, you've got prophecy that's verbally given to those people at that time and yet not recorded in Scripture. Not recorded until Jude brings that information around in Jude 14. Then Hebrews. Hebrews references Enoch's faith and the pleasure he gave to God. Now we have an example of Abel's faith and that God regarded His Him, and God regarded His offering, but we have statements of regard. We don't have statements of pleasure with relationship to uh, uh, Abel. Last week, did we see any pleasure last week? We saw regard. We saw regard for Abel and regard for his sacrifice. We saw no regard for Cain and no regard for Cain's sacrifice. But we didn't see pleasure. And that's not an accident because pleasure, God separates sacrifice from pleasure. Even when the sacrifice is correct, his pleasure is in walking. His pleasure is in the fellowship that he has with those that obey him and those that walk with him. And we'll be seeing more on this when we study the pleasure of God in um, the Colossians series, that we uh, are filled with the knowledge of His will so we can walk and please God. So Hebrews references Enoch's faith and the pleasure he gave to God, using that example to provide a theological expression of faith and pleasure. It's a theological expression of faith and pleasure. And that's what it should come down to. For you and I, we should have this faith and pleasure. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that's what verse 6 tells us. And uh, the doctrine that goes behind that. And even uh in the closing uh, exhortation from chapter 10, remember the one that launches 11 and 12? The closing admonishment of chapter 10 talks about you have need of faith uh, and that um as it says in verse uh, 38, my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So even in Hebrews 10 at the end there when we had that closing admonishment about faith, even there was an expression of faith and pleasure. That you have need of, uh, my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back, in other words, without faith, my soul has no pleasure in him. So there is this tandem of faith and pleasure. If you are walking by faith and not by sight, you are walking the walk that brings pleasure to God. And it's designed to bring pleasure to God. We should be uh, mindful about what we do, pleasing God and not pleasing man, pleasing God and not pleasing ourselves, pleasing God in all that we do. That's the walk of faith. And if we get sidetracked, if we start pleasing men instead of God, uh, we've, we've abandoned the walk of faith. Truly, we're walking by sight at that point. Or even worse, if we start pleasing ourselves. Now we're really not walking by faith. If, if we're just dedicated to pleasing ourselves all day, every day, we're just making ourselves an idol, that's not the walk of faith. And that's the shrinking back and my soul has no pleasure in him admonishment from Hebrews ten thirty eight. Now, crossing from verse 5 to verse 6, we get into some very interesting things. But he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Impossible. You cannot take faith out of the equation. It is non-negotiable. It is, it is essential. It is the very essence of what it means to be pleasing to God. Minus faith, no pleasure whatsoever. The, theologically, the Latins had an expression for this. Hebrews eleven six. 6. It's called the sine qua non. You ever heard that phrase before? The sine qua non. We talk about it uh, in dispensationalism, for example. The sine qua non of dispensationalism that Schaefer would write about or Ryrie would would write about. But here I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it not for dispensationalism. I'm going to use it for pleasing God because Hebrews 11.6 uses it for pleasing God. Okay? It is the sine qua non. It's a Latin phrase that means without it, it's not. Without which, it is not. So without faith, it is not pleasing to God. It is an essential ingredient. You know, maybe there could be other things you could leave out. Something else might get let out and you could still call it pleasing God. But faith, no. The minute faith is absent, there's no pleasure to God. That is powerful. I mean, that just tells it like it is. It'd be like an ingredient for, um, if you leave a certain ingredient out, can you still call it a recipe for, for something, right? If you, uh, if you lead, uh, okay, my Aunt Phyllis, a marvelous cook, tried to impress my Uncle Dick when they were newlyweds because her specialty was peanut butter cookies. And my Uncle Dick loved peanut butter cookies and so she fixed some form in the first week or two of their marriage, but she left an ingredient out. Guess which Yeah. <laughs> the ingredient, wouldn't you know it, the ingredient she left out was the peanut butter. Okay? And they were married 60 years. They, they told the story over and over and over again, and, and I'm still telling the story. And uh, now, can you really call them peanut butter cookies if you left the peanut butter out? By definition, I, I don't think that's right. I just think it's, it's something else. It's just not a peanut butter cookie. That's what happens when you take faith out of your walk. If you take faith out of your daily walk, you're not pleasing God. No matter what else you do, there's no pleasure in that. And you could, you could do good works till the cows come home. Without faith, it's wood, hay, and stubble. Without faith, God has no pleasure in it, and and he's not going to look at that for all eternity. He's going to look at it one more time when he burns it up at the judgment seat. It's going to be laid before him on the altar as wood, hay, and stubble will be burned, consumed, and gone. And you thought you were doing all this great work for God. It was without faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so we can get this. And and it should be interesting for us because it's true related to salvation. It's true related to our priestly walk. It's true related to our fruit bearing. It's true related to everything centering on what pleases Him. Saving us pleases Him. Our priesthood pleases Him. Our fruit bearing pleases Him. And so this faith issue is the sine qua non of a lot of different things, starting with our salvation and also including our priestly worship. Without faith, no one comes to the Father. That should be clear enough. I mean, you can preach these yourself. You know these verses. What does John 3.16 say? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him, well, then there you have it. There's your faith. Believe is the verb, pistuo. Faith is the noun, pistis. It's the same thing. Whatever you're talking about, if you're talking about faith or belief, So faith, without faith, nobody's saved. You can become a church member and serve God and do whatever, but if you're not a believer, you're not going to heaven. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. It's retroactively positionally true. You're born in Adam. You are already a judged member of the Adamic race at your physical birth. The little babies that we prayed for uh, a few weeks back, they're, they're in Adam. And yeah, they're cute. We, we, you know, we make googie eyes at them, but they're, they're in Adam. They need a Savior. Has been judged already because he has not believed. There's faith in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. So without faith... It's the faith is the sine qua non of salvation. It's also the sine qua non of our priesthood. It's our sine qua non for pleasing God. And this is what we have to ask. What is Hebrews eleven six 6 even talking about? He who comes to God must believe that he is. Is that talking about an unbeliever getting saved? For the he who comes to God? Or is that talking about a believer walking by faith who comes to Him in a priestly function. That's what Hebrews is all about. It's a, somebody who's already saved but coming to God within the veil uh, in the priestly function of our position in Christ. You must believe. You've got to do that by faith. And we'll, um, we'll uh, exegete the rest of this here today as well. Believe that He exists? No. Of course He exists. Are you kidding me? Just don't be an atheist and God's happy with you. Wait a minute. That can't be what it's talking about. Uh, Ephesians 2.7, of course. Um, it's it's uh, grace. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So without faith, nobody is saved. Without faith, nobody has eternal life. And so that's true in terms of coming to God for salvation, but it's also true in terms of coming to God for our priestly function. All right. Likewise, faith. The sine qua non of priestly worship. Without faith, there is no priestly worship. Hebrews 10, 22. Uh, Remember entering within the veil? Remember the confidence that we have to enter within the veil? Hebrews 10:19 says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. This isn't a gospel call. We're not talking to unbelievers, telling them how to get saved. We're talking to brethren, holy brethren. This is urging church age saints to function in their priesthood. And that has to be done by faith. Enter within the veil, enter into the holy place, Stand before God the Father by faith. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of what? Of faith. Faith is the sine qua non of our priestly function. Without faith we we are not functioning as Melchizedek priests before the Father. And Hebrews 11.6 without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to god is this is this the unbeliever getting saved no this is the believer who's entering within the veil and standing before the father's glory coming before him in priestly worship he who comes to god must believe there's faith must believe that He is and that He becomes. He is and He becomes. And this is what we got to look at next. So faith is the sine qua non, without which it is not. Without which it is not. Now, say, well, do I really have to please God? <laughs> is that optional? I mean, I'm saved, right? So... What happens if I don't please God? Again, that's shrinking back to destruction of the soul. And you don't want the temporal life consequences there. And so, yes, uh, you are commanded to please him. So start pleasing him. Pleasing God is the prime motivation for his beloved son. It is also the prime objective for believers in Christ. Pleasing God. We don't, you know, if, if he wanted us to live for ourselves, he could have just left us in Adam. That's how we used to live when we were living for ourselves. Um but he, we, have, we now are alive to God in Christ so that we who live no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died and gave Himself for us. That's the whole reason why we have new life in Christ, so we don't have to live for ourselves like we did as unbelievers. We saw these last hour, actually. We didn't turn to Isaiah 42, one, but my beloved Son, uh, in whom I'm well pleased. And uh, the, the heavens were open, and the Father spoke that. He spoke that to Jesus at the River Jordan. When he came to be baptized in Matthew 3, he's spoken again on the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter wouldn't shut his mouth in uh, Matthew chapter 17. And so the beloved son, and he always does the things that are pleasing to God the Father. Always. And then he challenged the Pharisees because they were doing the things that were pleasing to their father, and their father was the devil. So if you missed last hour, you missed a lot. There was a lot in there and if you want to go get the website, I'll get the MP3, you can, as it's sitting there. And it should be the prime objective for believers in Christ. I mean, why, why name the name of Christ if you're not doing the deeds of Christ? And the deeds of Christ were constantly pleasing the Father. If we are in the name of Christ, let's start pleasing the Father. That's what, that's what Jesus was all about. And so uh, Hebrews 10, 38, are we of those that... Uh, are living by faith and, and pleasing the Father? Or are we those that shrink back, whereby my soul has no pleasure in Him? Now, the author says, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction. In other words, we are those who are expected to walk by faith. We are those who should be pleasing to the Father, those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Colossians 1.10 is where we are in the Colossians series on 9.30 and on Wednesday nights, by the way. The Wednesday night class continues the the Sunday morning 9.30 class. And so Colossians 1.10, that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. We had that as a Scripture memory verse a few weeks ago and we're still working on those, pleasing to God. Ephesians 5.10 Ephesians is the sister letter to Colossians. They're not identical twins, but they are twin sisters. Ephesians 5.10 You were formerly darkness, but now you are a light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. See, the unbeliever thinks we're just a bunch of goody two shoes that just uh, we have, we're legalists, we've got lists of rules, and we don't do the things they, they do because we're uh, hateful and judgmental and we think we're better than them. <laughs> Okay, they'll they'll accuse you of that. It's not true, of course. The the whole point of godly living is that we love God and we want to obey what he has for us to do. And we now have a new nature in Christ for which this new nature is a son of light. Of course, we're walking in the light. Walking in the light, bearing fruit, not participating in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. We conduct ourselves in a manner that's pleasing to God. And if the unbeliever who's displeasing to God uh, thinks that we're judging them, um, maybe, uh, maybe we might just talk to him and say, you know, really you're reflecting a guilty conscience and that the Holy Spirit could be provoking you at this point. And if you want to know, I can tell you what the answer is to that sin conviction. There's, uh, there's grace available. Because uh, I'm not better than you. I'm, I'm the same as you. I'm a sinner. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And uh, it's not about the sins you're doing. It's about the Savior that paid for those sins. And so, you know, if you can take the time to talk to those kind of folks in between their attacks against you, <laughs> okay, say, I, I'm not judging you. I'm not, I'm not living a righteous life because I think I'm better than you. It's all the grace of God. That's what it is. And lay it out there. And in some respects, that might I mean just the genuineness of that could be sufficient enough to reach folks that think that that there's no genuine anything that we're just a bunch of hypocrites, that religious people are a bunch of phonies. and so a genuine uh, a statement of, of the grace that saves us from our sin, that genu- genuine uh, testimony can be powerful uh, when it comes to that. So pleasing God requires faith. In other words, we're not done with faith when we get saved. We continue to walk by faith. Faith is the ongoing operation. Faith, hope, love, abide these three. Um, faith doesn't stop simply because we're saved. If that's the case, goodness, what have I been doing since 1973? I got saved a long time ago. Uh, no, faith continues. We keep using faith all day, every day in the, in, uh, from the time we're saved to the time where we're ran, or delivered out of this place through physical death or rapture so we want to be pleasing and faith is what allows us to be pleasing now coming to god or coming to god what are we talking about and we can confuse things if we think that this verse is just restating john 14:6 this verse is not restating john 14:6 in effect it uses a different word for coming to god so coming to god and coming to god are two different things in the John fourteen six, coming to God is uh, is erkamai, and in uh, Hebrews eleven six, it's pros and if you erkamai and pros together, you can learn how to pros You can learn how to pray. You can learn how to pray, and that's what it is. But the only people that can pros are the ones that have erkamaid and pros and we don't do a lot of exegesis in this hour. That's. Saved mostly for the nine thirty service, but here it's kind of inescapable because we talk about the one who comes to God. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God, now just reading on the surface, that could be confusing with John fourteen six, where Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me." John fourteen six. Do we? Should I assume that we know this passage? John 14, 6. And (laughs) even this one we have to stop and ask ourselves, is this a getting saved moment? Is Jesus talking about coming to the Father as a personal salvation experience? We often preach it that way, but I think he's actually in context discussing the rapture and discussing the home he's going to prepare, and coming again and receiving you to myself. And obviously no one's going to get raptured unless they're saved first. So it's not wrong to teach this as a salvation principle. The exclusivity of the gospel is an exclusive gospel. There is no other way to receive eternal life but faith in Christ. And you can prove that from many passages of Scripture, including John 14, 6, although it's an adaptation, not an explicit um, Use of John 14, 6. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So you have a salvation. Now have a walk of faith. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus ascended 50 days after, uh, 40 days after his resurrection, 10 days before Pentecost. So he would have ascended on uh, May 14th of 33 A.D., and I expect that very same day he got to work building our uh, our eternal dwellings. He's been doing it ever since. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Then when he comes again, it's going to be a gathering. It's going to be an epi synagogue. It's going to be an ultimate gathering because he's going to catch us up in the air. He's not going to come all the way to the earth but he's going to descend to the clouds. We're going to meet him in the air. That's what it says here. I will receive you to myself. And it doesn't say, and then we're going to kick butt in Armageddon and conquer all the bad guys. It says, I will receive you to myself and then take you home and show you the, the mansions I've been preparing. And so King James used the word mansions and we're kind of stuck with that, but um, the mansions in a lot of our hymns come from the, the, the term here because it's hard to rhyme condominium with things in your hymn lyrics. <laughs> but it is uh, an apartment, a, a dwelling place, a room, a condominium, if you will. And uh, you know that where I am, there you may be also. That's another rapture promise. Thus we shall always be with the Lord, First Thessalonians 4. And you know the way where I am going. Because it's the only way to get there. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? So Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I love this. I have two daughters with these three words. I never had a hadas, but I have an Aletheia and I have a Zoe. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, the verb there is erkamai. The verb there is erkamai, and that's a true reality. That's there's a doctrine of erkamai to the Father, but then there's the doctrine of pros erkamai to the Father. There's an intensive expression, and the pros speaks of the face to face. The pros speaks to the priestly function when we stand in that presence, the face of the Father, which is what we do in Hebrews. Entering within the veil and standing before the Father. So when we go to Hebrews 11.6, it's not Er Erkamai. It's not a John 14.6 application. It's a different application. And this one, we don't have to wait for a trumpet to sound. This one we do all day, every day. Every time you go to the Father in prayer, you're doing this one. We don't have to wait for the rapture for this. We don't have to wait for the trumpet. We don't have to wait to be gathered together in the clouds. We don't have to wait for Jesus to take us there. That's, uh, that's all future, and I hope it's today. But until that happens, I can proserch there all the time. Anytime I want to go to the Father in prayer. I don't have to wait for a certain day of the month or a certain day of the year or a certain... I don't have to have, make sure there's preparational uh, cleansing that happens first or there's preparational... I can go there. I enter within the veil anytime I want to because He has already cleansed me. I'm already righteous in His sight. And I don't have to wait until, uh, you know, the, the new moon of the month of October after the vernal equinox, or the autumnal equinox, whatever. I mean, you talk about tracking the calendar, trying to figure out when I can stand in the presence of God. I, I can stand there right now. I should be. We all should be. So, coming to God and coming to God. They're uh, both by grace through faith. Um, and we have the different verbs of what we look at there. Now, let's talk about being and becoming. Can I do this in four minutes? I don't know. Being and becoming. See, I think what gets missed when we say the one who comes to God must believe that he is, must believe that he is. And if that was the only thing it said here, it would be stupid. I mean, honestly. Who comes to a God they don't believe in? It's not saying don't be an atheist. It's beyond existence. I think the Amy expression speaks to the I am expression of the Hebrew, speaks to the I am language of, of God in his eternality. He is the purely eternal being of the I am. He is the eternal, unchanging I am. And the eternal, unchanging I am of of, uh, uh, Exodus and of of, uh, John 1 and everywhere else, the seven times that Jesus made his I am statements, they were powerful. But the eternal, unchanging I am becomes a reward paybacker. He becomes a rewarder. And not just any rewarder, it's an apotitome reward paybacker. And this is going to take some work too. So stay tuned. I'm just teasing it. We'll uh we'll uh spend some time with this next week. Because it's too important. I think it's 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 it is it is not only is it a huge light bulb moment, but it is uh it is uh, uh profound in some very glorious ways because we pay attention to the verb amy, E-I-M-I. That's the I am vocabulary, okay? E-I-M-I is the Greek for I am. Some people say I I say Amy. But there's a difference between being and becoming. To become something you were not before. And every one of us, we're all human, we're all finite. None of us can make I am statements without the recognition that those I am statements really have an I become underneath them, right? If I try to say I am a pastor, I have to admit I became a pastor and tell you the date and time and circumstances. Or I am a married man. That's true. But I became a married man in... I forget when. You give the... (laughs) See, my wife's out of town this weekend, so I can... The uh, anything we say, any I am statement for us is really a a follow-up to an I became statement that points to something in our past. That's not true for God. God is an eternal I am. And the only exception to that is, well, there's two. Because the word became flesh. All right? And so next week, we're going to look at John chapter one, and we're going to see theologically that we have a string of I am, I am, I am. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And all of those are the eternal I am's of God, the son. But then there's a ginomai. And ginomai is the Greek word for becoming something you were not before. And God who cannot change, the immutable God, became something he was not before without changing what he always has been. He's undiminished deity, but true humanity. And he became human and he became flesh. Two different events, but he became. And the reason why I'm I'm slowly walking us through this, the reason why I believe the Holy Spirit didn't let me teach this today and just told me to tease it and we're going to do the rest of it next week is because this is another Amy-Ginamai tandem that God becomes a rewarder. He's not an eternal rewarder because from all eternity there was nobody to reward. But he becomes a rewarder when we come to him. So the I am becomes a rewarder. And he becomes a rewarder every time we ask, every time we seek, every time we knock. Every time we go to him in prayer, he becomes the reward paybacker. And that's, that's a special kind of rewarder. We, uh, <laughs> relax, but we, we, um, we live in the fallen world. Some of us have some rough uh, workplaces. Some of us have some unforgiving uh, uh, coworkers. We live in a pretty harsh world and sometimes payback is a dirty, carnal, ugly thing. So much so that when we hear the word payback, we, we, we have an instantaneous um, kind of a impression, right? But payback is a glorious word. I'm going to try to rescue that word because payback, sanctified, you know, it's sanctified use. Payback is a glorious thing and God is the eternally rewarding paybacker when he gives recompense for our prayer life, when he gives recompense for our priestly function by faith. It's not just reward, it's payback reward. And so uh, we got to make sure that we have something, we're contributing something for God to pay back as he rewards. So that's too much to get into this morning. Father, I thank you for truth, and I thank you for brothers and sisters that are committed to truth. I thank you for brothers and sisters that are serious students of the Word of God, that they don't come here for the fun and games and the entertainment and the programs. They come here for the teaching. They come here to be fed. They come here because they are true disciples living and abiding in the Word of God, and they want to learn from the Word of God day by day and moment by moment. I thank you, Father, and I pray that as we, uh, as we uh, exegete um, verse 6, as we exegete what it means to come to you, what it means to be rewarded, and what, what it means for you to become something that you were not before our prayer, I pray that we, uh, we understand this for what it's truly saying. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.